chapters nineteen and twenty of the pawn's count by e phillips oppenheim this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tom weiss chapter nineteen high up in one of the topmost chambers of the hotel plaza nikasti after his conference with von schwerin and fischer sought solitude he opened the high windows out of which he could scarcely see dragged up a chest of drawers and perched himself oriental fashion on the top his long yellow fingers intertwined around his knees his soft brown eyes gazing over the wooded slopes of the park he was away from the clamour of tongues from the poison clouds of sophistry even from the disturbance of his own thoughts incited by specious arguments to some form of reciprocity here he sat in the clouds and searched for the true things his eyes seemed to be travelling over the battlefields of europe he saw the swaying fortunes of mighty armies he looked into council chambers he seemed to feel the pulses of the great world force which kept going this most amazing juggernaut he saw the furnaces of japan blazing by night and by day saw the forms of hundreds of thousands of his fellow-creatures bent to their tasks saw the streams of ships leaving his ports laden with stores saw the great guns speeding across siberia the endless trains of ammunition the rifles food for the famine-stricken giants who beat upon the air with empty fists he saw the gold come streaming back he saw it poured into the banks the pockets of the merchants the homes of his people he saw brightening days throughout the land he saw the slow but splendid strength of the nation rejoicing in its new possibilities and beyond that what wealth was the great means towards the great end but if the great end were once lost sight of there was no more hideous poison than that stream of enervating prosperity he remembered his own diatribes concerning the decadence of england how he had pointed to the gold poison to the easy living of the poor the blatant luxury of the rich he had pointed to the soft limbs the cities which had become pools of sensuality to the daily life which calling for no effort had seen the passing of the spirit and the triumph of the gross and what about his own people mankind was the same the world over the gold which was bringing strength and life to the nation might very soon exude the same poisonous fumes might very soon be laying its thrall upon a people to whom living had become an easier thing however it might be for other the western nations for his own he firmly believed that war alone with its thousand privations its call to the chivalry of his people was the one great safeguard china the days had gone by when the taking of china could inspire it was to greater things that they must look australia new zealand had any western race the right to flaunt her empire's flag in asiatic seas and america once again he felt the slow rising of wrath as he recalled the insults of past years the adventurous sons of his country treated like savages and negroes by that uncultured strong-limbed race of coarse-fibred unimaginative materialists there was a call indeed to the soul of his country to avenge to make safe the homes and lives of her colonists across the seas he looked into the council chambers of the wise men of his race he saw the men whose word would tell he watched their faces turned towards him waiting heard the beginning of the conflict of thoughts and minds 
blind fidelity to the cause which they had espoused, or a rougher, more splendid, more selfish stroke for the greatness of Japan, and Japan only. "'If we break our faith we lose our honor,' one murmured. "'There is no honor save the care of my people,' he heard one of his greatest countrymen reply. So he sat and thought, revolved in his mind arguments, morals, philosophy. It was the problem which had confronted the great emperor, his own ancestor who had lived for three months on the floor of the temple, asking but one question of the silent powers. Through what gate shall I lead my nation to greatness? The senses of the man who crouched in his curious attitude, with his eyes still piercing the heavens, were mobile and extraordinary things. No disturbing sounds had reached him from outside. His isolation seemed complete and impregnable. Yet without turning his head he was perfectly conscious of the slow opening of the door. His whole frame stiffened. He was conscious for one bitter second of a lapse from the careful guarding of his ways. That second passed, however, and left him prepared even for danger, his brain and muscles alike tense. He turned his head. The expression of slow surprise, which even parted his lips and narrowed his eyes, was only half assumed. "'What do you wish?' he asked. Lutchester did not for a moment reply. He had closed the door behind him carefully, and was looking around the room now with evident interest. Its bareness of furniture and decoration were noteworthy, but on the top of the ugly chest of drawers was a great bowl of roses, a queer little ivory figure set in an arched frame of copper a figure almost sacerdotal, with its face turned towards the east, and a little shower of rose-leaves which could scarcely have fallen there by accident at the foot of the pedestal. Lutchester inclined his head gravely as he looked towards it, a gesture entirely reverential, almost an obeisance. Nikasti's eyes were clouded with curiosity. He slipped down to the ground. "'I have travelled in your country,' Lutchester said gravely, as though an explanation. I have visited your temples. I may say that I have prayed there. And now? Nikasti asked. I am for my country what you are for yours, Lutchester proceeded. You see, I know when it is best to speak the truth. I am in New York because you are in New York. And if you leave on Saturday for Japan, it may happen, of this I am not sure, but I say that it may happen that I shall accompany you. I shall be much honored, Nikasti murmured. You came here, Lutchester continued, to meet an emissary from Berlin. Your country, which could listen to no official word from any one of her official enemies, can yet, through you, learn what is in their minds. You have seen today Fischer and the Baron von Schweren. Fischer has probably presented to you the letter which he has brought from Berlin. Von Schweren has expounded further the proposition and the price which form part of his offer. Nikasti's face was imperturbable, but there was trouble in his eyes. "'You have found your way to much knowledge,' he muttered. "'I must find my way to more. I must know what Germany offers you. I must know what is at the back of your mind when you repeat this offer in Tokyo.' "'You can make then the unwilling speak,' Nikasti demanded. "'Even that is amongst the possibilities,' Lutchester affirmed. Strange things have been done for the cause which such as you and I revere. Nikasti showed his white teeth for a moment in a smile meant to be contemptuous. 
"'It is a great riddle, this, which we toss from one to the other,' he observed. "'I am the simple valet of two gentlemen living in the hotel. You have listened, perhaps, to fairy tales, or dreamed them yourself, sir.' "'It is no fairy tale,' Lutchester rejoined, "'that you are Prince Nikasti, the third son of the great Marquis Atto, that you and I met more than once in London when you were living there some years ago.' that you travelled through our country and drew up so scathing an indictment of our domestic and industrial position that but for their clumsy diplomacy your country would probably have made overtures to germany ever since those days i have wondered about you i have wondered whether you are with your country in your friendship towards england i have no friends but my country's friends nikasti declared no enemies save her enemies but to-day these things of which you have spoken do not concern me. I am the Japanese valet of Mr. Fisher and Mr. Van Tail. Lutchester, as though by accident, came a step further into the room. Nikasti's eyes never left his face. Perhaps at that moment each knew the other's purpose, though their tongues clung to the other things. "'Will you talk to me, Japan?' Lutchester asked calmly. "'You have listened to Germany. I am England.' "'If you have anything to say,' Nikasti replied, "'Baron Young is at Washington.' "'You and I know well,' Lutchester continued, "'that ambassadors are but the figureheads in the world's history. Speak to me of the things which concern our nations, Nikasti. Tell me of the letter you bear to the Emperor. You have nothing to lose. Sit down and talk to me, man to man. You have heard Germany, hear England.' tell me of the promises made to you within the last hour, and I will show you how they can never be kept. Let us talk of your country's future. You and I can tell one another much. A valet knows nothing, Nikasti murmured. Lutchester came a step nearer. Nikasti, in retreating, was now almost in a corner of the room. Listen, Lutchester went on, for many years I have suspected that you are an enemy of my country. That is the reason why, when our intelligence department learned of your mission, I chose to come myself to meet you. And now we meet, Nikasti, face to face, and all that you are willing to do for your country I am willing to do for mine, and unless you sit down and talk this matter out with me as man to man, you will not leave New York. The arm of the Japanese stole with the most perfect naturalness inside his coat, and Lutchester knew then that the die was cast. The line of blue steel flashed out too late. The hand which gripped the strangely shaped little knife was held as though in a vice, and Lutchester's other arm was suddenly thrown around the neck of his assailant, his fingers pressed against his windpipe. "'Drop the knife,' he ordered. It fell clattering onto the hard floor. Nikasti, however, twisted himself almost free, took a flying leap sideways, and seized his adversary's leg. In another moment he came down upon the floor with a crash. Lutchester's grip upon him, a little cooler now, was like a band of steel. "'There are many ways of playing this game. It is you who have chosen this one,' he said. "'It's no use, Nikasti. I know as much of your own science as you do. You're my man now until I choose to let you free. And before I do that I am going to read the letter which you are taking to Japan.' Nikasti's eyes were red with fury, but every movement was torture. Lutchester held him easily with one hand, felt over him with the other, drew the letter from his vest, 
and shaking it free from its envelope, held it out and read it. When he had finished, he replaced it in the envelope and pushed it back into the other's breast pocket. Now, he directed, you can get up. Nikasti scrambled to his feet. There were livid marks under his eyes. For a moment he had lost all his vitality. He was like a beaten creature. You would never have done this, he muttered, ten years ago. I grow old. So that is the letter which you are taking to your emperor, Lutchester said. You think it worth while? You can really see the German fleet steaming past the British Isles out into the Atlantic and bombarding New York? Nikasti made no reply. Lutchester looked at him for a moment thoughtfully. There was a light once more in the beaten man's eyes, a queer, secretive gleam. Lutchester stooped down and picked up the knife from the floor. Nikasti, he enjoined, listen to me for your country's sake. The promise contained in that letter is barely worth the paper it is written on, so long as the British fleet remains what it is. But apart from that, I tell you here of my own profound conviction, and I will prove it to you before many days are past. Germany does not intend to keep this promise. Nikasti made no reply. His face was expressionless. Germany has but one idea, Lutchester continued. She means to play you and America off against one another. I have found out her offer to you. All I can say is, if you take it seriously, you are not the man I think you. Now I will tell you what I am going to do. I am going to find out her offer to America. I will bring that to you, and you shall see the two side by side. Then you shall know how much you can rely upon a country whose diplomacy is bred and born of lies, who cheats at every move of the game, who makes a deliberate offer here which he never has the least intention of keeping. Have you anything to say to me, Nikasti? Nikasti raised his eyes for one moment. I have nothing to say, he replied. I am the valet of Mr. Fisher and Mr. Van Tail. These things are not of my concern. Lutchester shrugged his shoulders. Whatever you may be, he concluded, and however much you may resent all that has happened, I know that you will wait. I might go direct to Washington, but I prefer to come to you, if it remains possible. Before you leave this country we will meet again, and when you have heard me you will tear that letter which you are treasuring next your heart into small pieces. Lutchester turned and left the room, closing the door behind him. Nikasti crouched in his place without movement. The ache in his heart seemed to be shining out of his face. He turned slowly towards the little figure of black ivory. His head drooped lower. He was filled with a great shame. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 Fisher raised his eyebrows in mild surprise to find Nikasti waiting for him in the sitting-room that evening with his overcoat and evening hat. He closed the door of the bedroom from which he had issued, carefully behind him. "'You don't need to go on with this business now that we have had our little talk,' he remonstrated. "'I cannot leave until the twentieth, Nikasti replied. "'I think it best that I remain here. Your cocktail, sir.' Fisher accepted the glass with a good-humored little laugh. "'Well,' he said, "'I suppose you know what you want to do, but it seems to me unnecessary. Say, is anything wrong with you? You seem shaken somehow.' "'I am quite well.' Nikasti declared gravely. I am very well indeed. Fisher looked at him searchingly from behind his spectacles. You don't look it, he observed. 
if you'll take my advice, you'll get away from here and rest somewhere quietly for a few days. Why don't you try one of the summer hotels on Long Island?' Nikosti shook his head. "'Until I sail,' he decided, "'I stay here. It is better so.' "'You know best, of course,' Fisher replied. "'Where's Mr. Van Tail?' "'He has gone out with his sister, sir, the young lady in the next suite,' Nikosti announced. Fisher sighed for a moment. Then he finished his cocktail, drew on his gloves, and turned towards the door. "'Well, good-night,' he said. "'Perhaps you are wise to stay here. Remember always what it is that you carry about with you.' "'I shall remember,' Nikosti promised. Fisher entered his automobile and drove to a fashionable restaurant in the neighborhood of Fifth Avenue. Arrived here, he made his way to a room on the first floor, into which he was ushered by one of the head waiters. Von Schwerin was already there, talking with a little company of men. "'Ah, our friend Fischer!' the latter exclaimed. "'That makes our number complete.' A waiter handed around cocktails. Fischer smiled as he raised his glass to his lips. "'It is something, at least,' he confided, "'to be back in a country where one can speak freely.' I raised my arm. Von Schwerin and gentlemen, to the Fatherland. They all drank fervently and with a little guttural murmur. Von Schwerin set down his empty glass. He was looking a little glum. In many ways, my dear Fischer, he said, one sympathizes with that speech of yours. But the truth is best, and it is to talk truths that we have met this evening. We are gaining no ground here. I am not sure that we are not losing. There was a moment's disturbed and agitated silence. It is bad to hear one little man acknowledged with a sigh, but who can doubt it? There is a fever which has caught hold of this country, which blazes in the towns and smolders in the country places, and that is the fever of money-making. Men are blinded with the passion of it. They tell me that even Otto Schmidt in Milwaukee has turned his great factories into ammunition works. Von Schwerin's eyes flashed. Let him be careful, he muttered that one morning those are not blackened walls upon which he looks. We go to dinner now, gentlemen, and until we are alone afterwards, not one word concerning the great things. The partition doors leading into the dining-room were thrown back, and the little company of men sat down to dine. There were fourteen of them, and their names were well known throughout the world. There was a steel millionaire, half a dozen Wall Street magnates, a clothing manufacturer, whose house in Fifth Avenue was reputed to have cost two millions. There was not one of them who was not a patriot to Germany. They ate and drank through the courses of an abnormally long dinner with the business-like thoroughness of their race. When at last the coffee and liqueurs had been served, the waiters by prearrangement disappeared, and with a little flourish von Schwerin locked the door. Once more he raised his glass. "'To the Kaiser and the Fatherland!' he cried in a voice thick with emotion. For a moment a little flash of something almost like spirituality lightened the gathering. They were at least men with a purpose, and an unselfish purpose. "'Oscar Fischer,' von Schwerin said, "'my friends, all of you, you know how strenuous my labors have been during the last year. You know that three times the English ambassador has almost demanded my recall, and three times the matter has hung in the balance.' I have watched events in Washington, not through my own, but through a thousand eyes. My fingers are on the pulse of the country, so what I say to you needs nothing in the way of substantiation. The truth is best. Notwithstanding all my efforts, and the efforts of every one of you, 
the great momentum of public feeling from california to massachusetts has turned slowly towards the cause of our enemies washington is hopelessly against us the huge supplies which leave these shores day by day for england and france will continue fresh plants are being laid down for the manufacture of weapons and ammunition to be used against our country the hand of diplomacy is powerless we can struggle no longer even those who favor our cause are drunk with the joy of the golden harvest they are reaping this country has spoken once and for all and its voice is for our most hated enemy there were a variety of guttural and sympathetic ejaculations a dozen earnest faces turned towards von schwerin diplomacy von schwerin continued has failed we come to the next step there have been isolated acts of self-sacrifice splendid in themselves but systemless only the day before yesterday a great factory at detroit was burned to the ground and i can assure you gentlemen i who know that a thousand bales of cloth destined for france lie in a charred heap amongst the ruins that fire was no accident there was a brief silence fischer nodded approvingly von schwerin filled his glass this he went on was the individual act of a brave and faithful patriot the time has come for us too to remember that we are at war i have striven for you with the weapons of diplomacy and i have failed i ask you now to face the situation with me to make use of the only means left to us no one hesitated possibly ruin stared them in the face but not one flinched their heads drew closer together they discussed the ways and means of the new campaign we must add largely to our numbers von schwerin said and we had better have a fund so far as regards money i take it for granted there was a little chorus of fierce whispers five million dollars were subscribed by men who were willing if necessary to find fifty it is enough their leader assured them much of our labors will be amongst those to whom money is no object only remember all of you this we shall be a society without a written word with no role of membership without documents or institution for complicity in the things which follow will mean ruin you are willing to face that again that strange passionate instinct of unanimity prevailed to all appearance it was a gathering of commonplace commercialized and bourgeois easy-living men but the touch of the spirit was there fischer leaned a little forward in two months time he said every factory in america which is earning its blood money shall be in danger there will be a reign of terror each state will operate independently and secretly our friend fischer von schwerin told them has promised to stay over here for the present to organize this undertaking i alas am bound to remain always a little aloof but the time may come and very soon too when i shall be a freelance on that day i shall throw my lot in with yours to the last drop of my blood and the last hour of my liberty until then trust oscar fischer he has done great deeds already he will show you the way to more fischer took off his spectacles and wiped them our first proceeding he said sounds paradoxical it must be that we cease to exist there can be no longer any meanings amongst us who stand in this country for germany gatherings of this sort are finished we meet one or two of us perhaps by accident in the clubs and in the streets in our houses and perhaps in the restaurants but the bond which unites us 
and which no human power could ever sever because it is of the spirit, that bond from tonight is intangible. Wait, all of you, for a message. The task given to each shall not be too great. Mr. Max H. Bookham, a little black-bearded man who had started life tailoring in a garret and was now a multimillionaire, raised his glass. No task shall seem too great, he muttered. No risk shall make us afraid. Even the exile shall take up his burden. End of chapter 20. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks.com.